Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, with Kat Arney and her new book, Rebel Cell. Dr. Kat Arney is an award-winning science writer and broadcaster and holds a first-class degree in natural sciences and a PhD in developmental genetics from Cambridge University. She was a key part of the science communications team at Cancer Research UK from 2004 to 2016, writing for the charity's award-winning blog, producing and presenting their podcast, and regularly commenting in the media on their latest discoveries. Kat co-hosted the Naked Scientist radio show and presented the Naked Genetics podcast for many years and has fronted several BBC Radio 4 science documentaries and currently presents the Genetics on Zip podcast. She's the author of two previous books, Herding Hemingway's Cats and How to Code a Human, and is the founder and creative director of the Science Communications Consultancy First Create the Media. And Kat's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life. Kat, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hello, it's so nice to hear your voice and it's so nice to do this. (laughs) Tell us, first of all, what the idea behind Rebel Cell is then. So the roots of this actually go way, way back in my scientific career. And, uh, you know, I I spent 12 years in the science communication team at Cancer Research UK. So, yeah, I have an interest in cancer and sort of professional expertise in that. But the actual kind of roots of the idea behind the book go all the way back to when I did my PhD. And that was at the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge. And it's, it's an incredibly special place. And it was a place that mixed together cancer researchers and developmental biologists. And I was kind of on the development side. I was trying to answer the question, which is like, how on earth do you go from one cell with one set of DNA and kind of unfold an organism out of that? It's just absolutely mind-blowing question. It turns out it's really complicated and hard, and, and that's kind of why I'm not a scientist anymore, long story short. But like, how do you take one cell with one genome and turn that into a, a baby or a, a fruit fly or a worm or whatever you're making out of it? And then all the cancer researchers were kind of coming from that question from the other way around. They're like, how do you take a cell with a messed up set of DNA, a messed up genome, and unfold a terrible, terrible disease out of it? You know, many cells multiplying, doing all sorts of things, changing, evolving. It's kind of like life in a microcosm, sort of through a dark mirror. And that idea really fascinated me. And then I started uh, looking into this more. I thought when I first sat down to write Rebel Cell, it was kind of going to have a lot more genetics in it. Uh, And then I realized, like, it's not really about the genes themselves. It's about what all the changes in the genes that we see in cancer, what this enables cells to do, how it enables them to evolve, to 
fight against the other cells to emerge as the fittest. It's like a, it's evolution in a microcosm. It's, it's development in a microcosm. It's life in a microcosm. So that's kind of really the idea behind the book. We tend now to think of cancer as being something of a, a modern disease or, a, you know, a disease of modernity. That's obviously not the case, is it? No, and that's something I really wanted to bring out in this book. You know, we, we hear the narrative that cancer is it's a modern disease. It's a human disease. It's somehow been brought on us because of our, our terrible, toxic modern lifestyles. And, you know, while it is true that the rates of cancer are going up, a big chunk of that is to do with the fact that we are living longer than humans have ever lived. And the rates of cancer do go up significantly once you get into your sixth, seventh, eighth decade of life. And there are deep, deep evolutionary reasons behind that, which I do go into in some detail in the book. But like, it's not a modern disease. And it's not even a human disease. And we find examples of cancer across pretty much all branches of the tree of life. And, and it surprised me how much when I started looking at it, you know, I knew that dogs could get cancer because we lost our first dog to cancer. It was very, very sad. Um, I knew that there was evidence in things like the dinosaurs, that there were dinosaur fossils. But I didn't realize quite how much. So, for example, I found uh, there's a 270 million year old turtle fossil with a tumor in it the month that my book came out in the uk in, in august there was just that week the announcement that there was like a 77 million year old dinosaur fossil with a tumor and we find cancer in birds in reptiles in in all sorts of mammals in pretty much everywhere you look really weirdly there are two notable exceptions comb jellyfish who knows what their deal is but uh, comb jellyfish apparently do not get cancer and sponges there's certain types of sponges don't seem to get cancer but almost every single other organism animal does and that's because this is like a deep deep biological process this is part of life this is what happens when you are multicellular and your cells have to exist in a society you know we are made of organized tissues that's our cells kind of knuckling down and, and doing stuff together working together and this idea has really started to emerge it first emerged like several decades ago and everyone ignored it because it sounded a bit bonkers but the idea of like your cells exist as a society and that cancers emerge as kind of cheats as rebels in this system they break off their biological shackles they stop following the rules that keep our tissues healthy and they cheat and if they pick up enough genetic changes and, and become fit enough through the sort of the evolutionary process that's going on, then they can become a dangerous cancer. And that is a really different way of thinking about this disease compared to like something has happened that has made your cells go wrong and then they just started growing out of control, which is kind of what we usually think of when we think about the, the processes behind cancer. But this idea of like it's a cellular rebellion and that tells us that this goes deep. And that if we're going to be multicellular, cancer is the price that we pay for that multicellular life. And if we're going to have evolution, if we're going to have the process of evolution by natural selection, which gives us all the, the wild and wonderful diversity of life on Earth, that process also drives the evolution of cancers within our body. So, you know, you can't have one without the other and like, and you can't declare war on cancer because you can't really declare war on a biological concept. You know, you can't declare war on multicellularity. So it's, it's sort of a, a very different way of, of thinking about this disease. We're going to come back to the rules that cancer breaks, the way it cheats in a little while, but I just want to stick with some animals for the minute because, um, you know, as you said, apart from uh, some notable exceptions, most animals get 
cancer in some form or other. Some animals are better at dealing with it than others. And anyone that knows you, Cat, will know how how fond you are of the naked mole rat. So I want to talk about <laughs> why the naked mole rat is special in this context. There are many animals that are very special with their cancer risk. Um, actually, my favourite one that I discovered is the capybara which is like the most chill animal in the zoo, these kind of giant guinea pigs. Uh, we can kind of come back to them later, but they are remarkably uh, cancer-proof, given that they are quite big. And uh, generally animals that are quite big, you'd think would be more cancer-prone, but it turns out it's the other way around. Um, but yeah, naked mole rats. There's this kind of mythology around the naked mole rats that they don't get cancer because they're really unusual animals. So normally they live in Africa, they live in burrows underground, they are very, very weird. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but they're kind of politely described as a sausage with teeth. And I've actually been to a mole rat colony. I got to hold one in my hand. And it's like, I mean, this probably makes your podcast slightly X-rated, but it's literally like holding a semi-erect penis with teeth in your hands. That's exactly what it feels like. No, no. It's, it's got that kind of that wrinkly, warm, like it's a bit solid, but kind of a bit squishy with these massive teeth sticking out the front. Like, it's the stuff of nightmares. It is. But that's exactly what it feels like. So now your listeners know. Uh, but yeah, they're very unusual. Like they don't seem to feel pain. They can survive in extremely low oxygen conditions. Their skin is like weirdly stretchy. They don't seem to age in the same way. Like a, a, And they live for an incredibly long time. Like they can live for like upwards of 30 years in lab colonies, probably live a little bit less than that in the wild but they generally don't have many predators so they live for an incredibly long time and they don't seem to get older i mean they already look like they're about 90 so you you pays your money you take your choice but um they apparently though it was this kind of myth that they never got cancer but actually there have been some cancers described in a few cases in in some laboratory colonies but they've kind of solved this challenge of being long-lived and being cancer resistant because if you live for a long time and if cancer is a disease that emerges out of multicellularity and the natural kind of processes of life like the older you are the bigger you are the more cells you have the bigger you are and the older you are the more those cells hang around and the more you have to make new cells to keep the cells repaired and all that kind of thing then you should have a much higher risk of cancer but we see with things like the naked mole rats elephants whales um very long-lived bats their rates of cancer are surprisingly low same goes for the capybaras and they've all solved this problem in different ways so naked mole rats they have um there's a few things and no one's quite sure exactly why but you know it might be to do with the fact that they can survive in very low oxygen their cells are very resistant to the kind of stresses and strains that cells experience it may also be that they their cells make this kind of really sticky glue so their cells can't kind of migrate around in the same way that cancer cells can do in in our bodies and also their cells don't they don't like touching each other it's something called contact inhibition it's kind of the idea of a cell's personal space so if your cells start to get too crowded they start to die and it's a cancer protection mechanism and the mole rat cells are really sensitive to this so you can't actually get a critical mass of cells to form a tumour. And, you know, elephants have done this in different ways. They've got evolved multiple copies of a gene that means that if their cells are are damaged in any kind of way, they just die, which is fine because you've got cells to burn if you're an elephant. So anytime there's any sort of cellular damage that could potentially become cancerous, that cell just gone, dies. 
Um, bats seem to solve it in a different way. Brands bats, tiny bats, they live for about 40 years, which is incredible for a bat. They're about the size of a mouse lives for 40 years. Mad. But yeah, they do something to like the little caps on the ends of their chromosomes, their telomeres. They kind of uh, do something funny with them. And capybaras seem to have some kind of variation in their immune system that just mops up loads of cancer cells. So all these different species have sort of solved the problem of longevity or, or being big in different ways. And I, I found it absolutely fascinating. Uh, nature is amazing and, and terrible, but also amazing. I just want to come back to humans, ancient humans for a moment. Like we've said that it's false to believe that cancer is a, a disease of modernity. But let's just talk for a minute about how we know that in terms of researching ancient humans, you give a few examples in the book of mummies or ancient bones. Yeah, pretty much everywhere we look in ancient human populations, we find evidence of cancer. And it's turning out to be one of those situations where the more we look, the more we find. Because people haven't really looked very much before. And you don't kind of take handy CT scanners around and, you know, when you find an ancient burial site, you know, people aren't looking for signs of cancer. And also in ancient sites, all you've really got are the bones, unless you've got mummification. And not all cancers leave a mark in the bones. Quite a lot do, especially if they've spread into the bones, but not all do. And so you have this challenge of like, what is this thing, this abnormality in an ancient remain? Is it cancer? Because other diseases can look like cancer. Like, is this actually genuinely cancer and the more we start to look the more we find and i when i was in canada researching the book i spoke to a fantastic woman called casey kirkpatrick and she runs uh, she's involved in running something called the paleo oncological research organization the pro and it's this group of young women archaeologists who are looking for evidence of cancer in antiquity and they've got this huge database of like more than 250 pretty good specimens of where cancers have been found in some cases going back tens of thousands of years and some of these are quite rare cancers you know rare childhood cancers bone cancers all sorts of cancers and so we don't know how common cancer was in ancient populations because unfortunately you don't find lovely epidemiological age-matched series when you dig up um, human remains it's very frustrating but you know we know that it was there for sure we also do know that we can probably infer that Probably there was less of it in the population simply because people did not live as long as they do now. And we do know that rates do go up significantly. But, you know, there are just as there are things in our lives today that increase the risk of cancer, whether that's the things we do or things in our environment, you know, things like ultraviolet light from the sun, carcinogenic, uh, tobacco smoking. There are things that our ancestors were exposed to that increase the risk of cancer. I'm particularly thinking about smoke, soot from cooking fires. You know, we know that in places where people still cook over open fires, that soot increases the risk of certain types of cancer, like indoor smoke is a cancer risk. And there's a really fascinating example, I think it's in South America, where there's a lot of radioactive radon gas that naturally comes out of the ground. And in some of the skeletons there, they found abnormally high numbers of tumors or evidence of tumors in this population. So we can say that cancer is probably going to be more common in modern life, in modernity than it was before, but it was certainly there. And it's certainly not just a modern disease. And as we said, not just a human disease. Just one more thing on this and then we'll move on. There was um, a fantastic experiment you talk about in this book. Obviously, you know, finding ancient human remains, a lot of the time it's bones. So, you know, you might see a, a growth on the bones, but obviously mummies have a... Mm often have a lot you know a lot more 
remains to look at and we can x-ray them and and perhaps see some sort of lump and perhaps this might be a, a tumor or it might be not one of the ways in trying to figure that out you talk about this experiment that the woman did in mummifying mice <laughs> yeah this was casey and her colleagues i mean this was just wonderful we're sitting in this pub in toronto uh you know with a couple of glasses of wine and then she just starts telling me the story i'm like let's just get out of here so what they wanted to do was to work out like if we have a mummy if we have a mummy human remains, mummified human remains, and we put it in a scanner, does what we see, if we think that they have cancer, you know, what does that actually look like? So are we missing tumours? Are we seeing artefacts? What does a mummified tumour really look like? And so to find this out, they went to the local hospital and they got some mice from the cancer research lab. So these mice had cancers and, uh, and were dead, obviously. And they mummified these mice in different ways. So one of them they just put in sort of, they made a natural mummy. So they put it in like hot sand and it dehydrates. Um, another one, they buried it in a bog, but apparently when they came to dig it up, it was just so absolutely disgusting. They were like, uh, no, but we will, we will never know with bog mummies. But yeah, then they did the full ancient Egyptian burial on a mouse. They, you know, they take, took out his organs and packed it with all the resins and things like that, and mummified these animals. And then that meant that they knew what these animals had looked like when they were when they were alive. They scanned them. They knew what their tumours looked like and where they were. And then when they were dead, they could look at the mummies and say, OK, do we see all the tumours? Where are they? What do they look like? And it was a way of kind of helping them to work out, well, what do mummified tumours really look like? Are we missing anything or are we misinterpreting anything? And it was just a lovely kind of way of melding that very old archaeological research, you know, with your shorts and your trowel in a trench somewhere with a very modern approach to cancer research, that kind of like animal, animal-based research. So I, I thought that was uh, just a lovely story and uh, we did laugh a lot. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kat Arney, and we're talking about her new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution, and the Science of Life. And so, Kat, in the, in the second half, let's move on more towards where cancer comes from. In a minute, I want to talk about some ways that we used to think it came from. But first of all, let's just go back to this idea of cancer being a cheat that disrupts the normal rules that are set down for cells. So what do we mean by these rules? What are the rules that a cell is supposed to live by? So this is a really interesting theory. So it was kind of originally laid out probably a few decades ago, but it's sort of been built on by a few people since then. And the woman who was really influential in my thinking here is a researcher called Athena Actipis. Uh, And she's also brought out a book about cancer. Hers is called The Cheating Cell. Her idea, she's actually a researcher who studies societies. And she became really interested in the notion that like societies are basically the same at any level. It's almost this kind of fractal thing. So they kind of run on the same rules, whether you're talking about a human society or an animal society or a cellular society. And, um, you know, and I, I went to see her in, in her, her lab at the University of Arizona. And she sort of talks about these five rules to be a good cell. And that's basically like the five rules to be a good organism in any society that you're in. So one is like, don't take more than you need. Like, don't consume more resources than you actually need. Clear up after yourself. Don't just pollute the environment around you with garbage. Stick to the job you're meant to be doing. You know, if someone's told you to do something, you need to fulfill your role. Uh, don't reproduce more than you should. So in the, in the terms of cellular society, it's like, don't proliferate when you're not meant to. And then the other one, the final one, is kind of like, when you're done, step back. And in the case of a cellular society, it's kind of like, you know, if you're damaged or faulty, this cell needs to die. And all of those things maintain the health of the tissue. So she was like, okay, you've got this idea where a healthy society, you've got these cells living by all these rules, doing all these things. And the genetic changes, we do know that that cancer at its heart is kind of driven by genetic changes. We call them mutations. And we pick these up in our cells all the time as we go through life. By the time you're kind of middle-aged, you're just a patchwork of mutation. But, you know, these changes enable cells to, to cheat. Maybe that's to grow a bit more, to consume a bit more energy. And they can kind of expand their territory. And then they can pick up more genetic changes. And sometimes those changes will have no effect. Sometimes those changes will be harmful and those cells will die. But just sometimes those changes will increase their fitness again, allow them to cheat a bit more. And you've got this sort of evolutionary journey of like cells cheating a bit, cells cheating more. And if they do not kind of get suppressed by the cells around them or something happens that um, means that they kind of can't continue their journey, they can emerge as a cancer. And so this sort of, a, again, an, an interesting way of viewing it, because we do know now that like all our cells are messed up. This is research coming out from the, um, the Sanger Institute, the Wellcome Sanger Institute, a couple of years ago, where they looked at completely normal tissue from places like the eyelids, uh, the lining of the womb, uh, the esophagus, the food pipe, completely normal tissue, and found that it was just riddled with mutations by the time you get to middle age. And by the time you're in your 70s, like your tissue is messed up. But we will only develop in our lifetime one or maybe two new cancers. So actually, like, we are pretty cancer resistant for most of our lives. And the kind of the society, the rules of the society are pretty tight and and cells can't really manage to thrive. So that tells you that what must happen to enable a cancer to emerge to really, really cheat the system has to be pretty 
pretty messed up. They've got to be pretty bad cells. And, and that's kind of what I explore quite a lot in the book is like, what's that journey from a sad cell to a really bad cell, a, a rebel cell? I said I wanted to look at some of the ways that we that we used to imagine cancer works, and we'll you know we'll we'll draw a veil over your your Galen's and your black biles <laughs> and your, you know women breastfeeding some sort of sure. uh, <laughs> the toxic tits theory yeah, yeah. yeah all of that um, we'll we'll pass over those um, and I want to talk about one of the first people to legitimately discover a cause for cancer, and that's a guy who goes by the fantastic name of Percival Potts. It sounds like he's from like Mary Poppins or something. And indeed, that's quite appropriate because his theory revolves all around chimney sweeps. Yes, Percival Potts was a man um, who lived in the 1700s who had a purely professional interest in the scrotums of chimney sweeps. So in, in England at this time, small boys were sent up chimneys basically naked. And a lot of these children were, um, you know, children who'd sort of fallen through the cracks of society. A lot of them were orphans that treated abysmally badly and sent up chimneys naked and Percival Pot noticed that a lot of these chimney sweeps were developing genital tumors like kind of tumors on the, on their scrotums and he was like ah oh, I think this might be the soot clues in the name they were actually known as soot warts uh, he was like well I think it's the soot and he noticed he knew that in places like Germany they were actually giving their chimney sweeps really tight fitting pajamas like these sort of protective pajamas and the chimney sweeps weren't getting cancer. And he campaigned for, like, th- at least, you know, give them some pants, uh, let them wash, and started to reduce the incidence of these cancers. But actually, it, it still didn't really happen in his lifetime. This practice was still continuing because basically the gang masters didn't want to pay for the uniforms for the chimney sweeps, and the nice middle class people who sent the naked boys up the chimneys didn't really want to pay more for it. So, um, yeah, that's a very sad story of people discovering something that causes cancer but not being able to get the policy through that actually made a difference to public health but yeah it's the first real example of identifying a carcinogen and really proving that that's the thing and also working out how do you protect these boys how do you prevent these cancers and as we know yeah prevention would be great but sometimes politically and publicly quite hard to to make it happen one of the um, obvious environmental causes of cancer of a, a relatively modern society is obviously smoking, and smoking's linked to lung cancer. Slightly annoyingly, the first people to discover this, or one of the first people to discover this, weren't listened to. Why? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, a lot of people weren't listened to, to be fair, but the ones I'm particularly thinking of. I mean, there's a a lot of places, there's a lot of stories in the history of cancer research where people weren't listened to. But yeah, this was uh, because they were Nazis. So the first people who actually, well, there's a few people who identified a connection between smoking and lung cancer. Um, There was an Argentinian researcher, but a lot of the research that was done was done um, in Jena in Germany by the Nazis. And you sort of get this, there's a slight sort of conspiracy twist to it because apparently Hitler was quite passionate against smoking, was passionate and anti-smoking advocate because he was like, this is bad for you. Uh, and his researchers were like, yeah, it's bad for you. It gives you lung cancer. But the problem was that A, all their findings were published in German and B, they were published by Nazis. So, um, you know, in England, people weren't, and in America, people just weren't that interested. And it took a lot longer. It wasn't until the 50s when you have, um, you know, Richard Dole and then Austin Bradford Hill actually proving through their their studies that smoking is a cause of cancer and and, you know and they did it very cleverly because they got doctors involved because doctors were smoking loads and and they were like ah you know that thing that's killing your patients 
we think it might be killing you too. Let's find out. So they, they did all these studies with doctors and proved that smoking was uh, very significantly increased the risk of lung cancer and, and other diseases as well. But yeah, all, that link had first been made by the Nazis and uh, it took a long time to actually, you know, reprove it again in English unfortunately, during which time, you know, more and more people were smoking, more and more people went on to get lung cancer. I was actually, I was lucky enough researching this book to get to talk to Richard Pito, who worked with Richard Dole. He was sort of did a lot of the follow-up work on the long-term impacts of smoking and is an incredible epidemiologist. He's in, in the University of Oxford. And it, yeah, he's like, I was like, do you feel angry about the, the tobacco companies doing all this stuff and, and causing so much misery? And he's like, well, we live in a capitalist society. That's what they're doing, you know. And if they had a PR company that wasn't trying to sell as many cigarettes as possible, they should fire that PR company, get another one. Because really, in his mind, the only thing that really works to control tobacco is taxes. Any legislation that you bring in that the tobacco companies really, really lobby hard against, that's kind of the stuff you know is going to work. So things like plain packaging, uh, massively increased taxes on, on tobacco. It works. You can see it. In, in the history of where those things have been brought in. Things like, you know, schools education programs. Tobacco companies absolutely fine to fund those, tells you they don't work at all. A theme of this book is the idea that, you know, cancer is an an inevitable part of complex life. And so with that idea in mind, is it even really appropriate to think that we could cure it? I mean, is that a pipe dream? So I think it's important to think about what do we mean by cure? And we've kind of been seduced by this narrative of cure. Like you know, since Cancer Research UK was founded in the early early 20th century, like it's this, we're going to find the cure. And we joke about it. It's like, oh, it's not like the cure for cancer, is it? Um, yeah, we've been really seduced by this idea that there is a cure for cancer out there. And that if we could just find it, we could cure cancer. And the problem is, is like, well, there's many more types of cancer. There's not just one type. And also that this notion of cure means complete eradication and that is possible for some cancers we know that we can cure some types of cancer in some cases incredibly effectively you know some childhood cancers although there are long-term side effects there which is also problematic um, things like testicular cancer like 99 percent of men with testicular cancer will survive for at least 10 years and that's absolutely fantastic we can cure a lot of breast cancers bowel cancers prostate cancers what we're really bad at curing is cancers that are diagnosed at a later stage or have come back after treatment. And so there, it's like, we need to really start thinking about alternative strategies. And kind of the, the end of the book is really looking at some of these strategies, which are embedded in evolutionary theory and evolutionary ideas, you know, trying to control cancers, trying to steer them into a dead end, even, you know, in some cases, yes, yeah, steer them to extinction, which would look like a cure. But this, this sort of narrative that we're just going to find the cure for cancer is really misleading. And it also takes us away from thinking about, well, we've got a lot of different drugs already that work in lots of different ways. We could use those more effectively in, in different dosing regimens and timings and combinations. And we can use you know, modern genetics and modern um, computing, molecular modeling, mathematical modeling to try and figure some of that out. So I think it's a, it's a very exciting future. You know, I, I do also want to mention, everyone asks about immunotherapy, which are these drugs that stimulate the immune system. And yeah, in some cases, those do seem to be bringing forward actual cures. Like the immune system is an incredibly powerful beast. Um, yeah, it can turn on us. It can also turn on cancer. And so in some cases, these drugs can 
wake up the immune system to find and destroy cancer cells. But they don't work for everyone. And in some cases, they can actually cause really dramatic, very rapid progression of cancer. So, you know, we need to be, we still need to understand a lot more about that interplay between different types of cancer and the immune system. But yeah, that's, that's a very exciting area as well. So I've been talking to Kat Arney. We've been talking about her new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, which is out in the UK from Weedenfeld and Nicholson. Kat, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you. It's been an absolute joy, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.